Welcome to the Council of Trend Podcast, a production of Catholic Answers. Hey everyone, welcome to the Council of Trent Podcast. I'm your host, Catholic Answers apologist and speaker, Trent Horn. And today I want to share with you a dialogue that I had with my colleague Jimmy Aiken on the Kalam cosmological argument and the larger issue about whether reason can prove that the universe had a beginning and these kinds of arguments for the existence of God. So in September, Catholic Answers put on their annual conference. We have it every year, I think it's the last weekend of September, in San Diego, though we're hoping in future years to be able to branch out, go to Dallas, go to other parts of the country. Uh, The theme for this year's conference was I Believe in God, so there were talks on how to answer atheism, how to make arguments for the existence of God. It was a really good event. I had spoken with the president of Catholic Answers, Chris Check, several months ago and said, could we do a debate on atheism as part of the conference? Logistics-wise, that didn't work out this year, but we did have time to do a kind of intramural debate or dialogue. So Jimmy and I sat down, and we have different views on issues related to the Kalam cosmological argument. That's the argument that says whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And the idea is that you can show from reason that the universe began to exist. This is something, an argument I've studied for many, many years, though my views on the best way to present the argument and how to present the evidence for a finite past and how that relates to the existence of God has changed over time, even very recently. Uh, I have a video here on my channel presenting a critique of William Lane Craig's approach to the argument, for example. So uh, Jimmy also had a dialogue with William Lane Craig on Pints with Aquinas. So my view on this is not the same as William Lane Craig's, for example. So Jimmy and, and Craig had their dialogue, how was that, a year or two ago? They had their dialogue, and they disagreed a lot, actually. Uh, Jimmy and I actually did not disagree as much because I have more of a modified view of the Kalam argument that I think can be very helpful in showing that at the very least, if there were a past infinite universe, it could only exist if God exists to prevent paradoxes from arising and other issues like that. So we had our dialogue. I invited Cy Kellett to moderate it. Uh, all I asked Cy to do was, hey, if we start talking way too high level for the attendees of this conference, jump in, help us to define terms. Uh, Cy didn't even really have to jump in very much because I think Jimmy and I had a good dialogue where we could engage each other while being cognizant of those at the conference who were listening to us to keep things pretty understandable. There were certainly points and facets of the argument that we didn't cover, that I would have liked to have covered. Uh, but otherwise, I think it was a really good exchange. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And yeah, here's the dialogue I had with Jimmy Aiken on the Kalam argument and using reason to prove the universe began and how that relates to God's existence. One thing I've really enjoyed at Catholic Answers, uh, coming up on seven years there, is the, the, the dialogues, the conversations. And, it's, and people don't always agree on things. And sometimes you hear that on the air, but I think rarely. Uh, And so it's nice to have this opportunity to talk about an important philosophical topic. I'm not a great philosopher. I don't claim to be, but I've always liked the Shazam argument, and I'm glad we're talking about the the Shazam argument uh, today. And we'll we'll see. uh, We'll we'll take various. uh, They'll they'll each uh, share their positions. But I'm going to just kind of sit over here on the side and drink Diet Coke um, and uh, listen, and then... Uh, just kind of uh, chime in if, if, if there's some question, if, 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 if it, it seems to me that there's something that needs a clarification and that kind of thing. So uh, please welcome Trent Horn, Jimmy Aiken. So you're the bouncer, right? If, if this gets violent. If anybody comes up here, uh, I, I go right after him. Yes. I've got a Topo Chico bottle and I will be using it. We're going to talk about the Kalam argument. The Shaz- Did you say the Shazam argument? I, okay. I think that's the argument if Billy Batson says Shazam in a room without air and there's no sound, does he still become Shazam? I thought that was I, what we were discussing. Actually, classically, he doesn't become Shazam. He becomes Captain Marvel. Shazam was the wizard who gave him his powers. He is also, his character has been renamed Shazam in later comics. I, that's why I included the word classically. Fair enough. <laughs> this is you the level of conversation. Me, to me, the Shazam argument is should he be called Shazam or should he be called Captain Marvel? That is a fair point. 
He could be both, depending on your perspective. You ever feel regret immediately upon saying something? Uh, well, so what are we doing here, Trent, and why are you wrong? <laughs> well, I thought today we could talk about uh, an argument for the existence of God, uh, a popular one in the in the Catholic world. Recently popular. Recently, yeah. Well, it was an argument that kind of fell out of favor after Aquinas didn't like it. And when Aquinas doesn't like things in the Catholic world, a lot of times they kind of they fall out of favor. Uh, but other people have picked it up, and it's interesting. So it, it basically deals with the question, uh, can we know that the universe had a beginning? You know, so if the universe had a beginning, this would be the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, it was first proposed by actually a Christian named John Philoponus in the 5th century, and it was refined by Muslim theologians and philosophers in the Middle Ages. Uh, some Christians, like St. Bonaventure, liked it. The idea is basically whatever begins to exist as a cause, the universe began to exist, so the universe is a cause, and you do some more thinking to figure out this cause must have divine attributes. Uh, the interesting question here is how do we know the universe began? As Catholics, we all agree that the deposit of faith teaches us in scripture and tradition that God created the universe from nothing in the finite past. The un God's eternal, the universe is not eternal. Okay. Uh, so we know that by faith, but can we know it by reason? Because if we could know by reason the universe at a beginning, that provides some powerful evidence for the existence of God, but people disagree about that. And so I thought maybe we could talk about the argument and where we agree, where we disagree, uh, because like I said, whether the universe could be proven to begin to exist in the finite past from reason alone, there's disagreements. Aquinas did not think so, St. Bonaventure thought so, and there's even Catholics today. And they're who, both doctors of the church. They're both doctors of the church. So you're, not, you're not a bad guy if you disagree on this question. That's what's interesting is being Catholic, there's questions where we have liberty. We can discuss and debate. So, yeah, we can just jump right into it. So to start on a note of agreement, you know, before we get to the mortal combat phase, um, I agree that... Finish the, him. <laughs> I agree that, that the... Kalam argument, the way you phrased it, anything that has a beginning has a cause, the universe has a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause, and that cause is God. I agree that that is a, <clears throat> both a uh, valid argument, meaning it obeys proper logical form, and I think it's a sound argument, meaning I think the premises are true. The universe, anything that has a beginning does have a cause, um, and the universe does have a beginning. And so I think the argument works. The question is, how can you show that the universe has a beginning? That second premise is the key one. And there's where I think I depart from some recent um, popular currents in apologetics. Now, as you mentioned, um, the Kalam argument has Christian roots, and, but it hasn't been popular in Catholic circles certainly for at least 800 years um, because of Aquinas' opposition to it. Now, I am not a Thomist. I disagree with Aquinas on bunches of stuff, but I happen to think he's right here. Um, recently, what happened starting in the 1970s, 1980s, is, a, is an evangelical uh, philosopher and apologist named William Elaine Craig, or Bill Craig, revived the Kalam argument in his... Um, I think it was like his dissertation or something. And then he published some books about it, and it's become very popular in evangelical circles, and it started to spill over into Catholic circles. And, in, um, and it's become popular enough that I've kind of sounded a bit of an alarm bell to say, hey, guys, this isn't, there, this isn't a slam dunk. Aquinas has, you know reasons he opposes this, and as a Catholic, you shouldn't just absorb the argument. You need to really think it through. And I'll add in here, we'll probably get into this later, mm -hmm. I also have concerns and criticisms about the way that William Lane Craig has formulated and put the argument forward. Yeah. It's important to remember that the Kalam cosmological argument, sort of like cosmological argument, it's better to say cosmological arguments, because they're really a family of arguments. So whenever, and as you'll see this as we go through the conference, we're talking about arguments for the existence of God. 
it's really rare there's just one argument. A lot of times someone will have an argument and they'll say, I think we should tweak it and it should be like this, or I think this is a better approach. They usually come in the form of families. So actually, so some of the criticisms that you have of the Kalam, I actually also share. And that's why I think, however, I do think they can there's be- There's hope for you then. They're, awesome. I think there's hope for the Kalam. It can, be, okay. it can be rehabilitated, but go on. Okay, so the question is how do we how do we support the second premise? How do we show the universe had a beginning? And there are two general approaches to doing that. One is a philosophical approach. And um, Bill Craig explores this possibility, as do others. The other approach is scientific, uh, where you use evidence from modern cosmology, you know, Big Bang cosmology, to argue the universe had a beginning. Um, I think that the philosophical argument, certainly all the ones I've seen, to sh try to show that the universe must have a beginning, it can't have an infinite history, I think the philosophical arguments, all of them don't work. Mm -hmm. At least none of the ones I've seen work, in my opinion. However, I think we can, and I even use, and if, if you have seen the little booklet I, or book I wrote called Words of Eternal Life, I actually use a simple version of the Kalam argument in that where I don't philosophically argue that the universe had a beginning. Instead, I argue from the Big Bang cosmology to say, okay, Big Bang gives us reason to, to believe that the universe had a beginning. We see a beginning-like event about 13.8 billion years in the past. And so if that's a real beginning to the universe, then the universe had a beginning and the rest of the argument follows. So I'm willing to use a limited version of the Kalam argument with a scientific justification for the beginning of the universe. But in science, everything is provisional. There is never final proof in science. And it is quite possible that Although the Big Bang did occur 13.8 billion years ago, it is very possible that there were states that preceded the Big Bang. Now, back in the 1980s, you would commonly hear um, cosmologists saying that there was a singularity at the beginning of the universe, that 13.8 billion years ago, space and time sprang into existence, and so there was nothing before that. But that's a position in cosmology that is obsolete. Um, if, you, if you talk to modern cosmologists, they're going to say, no, we don't have evidence of a singularity 13.8 billion years ago. There may have been preceding states. So the Big Bang may not have been the beginning of our universe. From a faith perspective, there's still a beginning. It would just be farther back than we can detect scientifically. But um, So I would say that the value of the scientific evidence is limited in that it's, it, it does seem to support a beginning to the universe, but it doesn't do so in a definitive, conclusive way. It only does so in a suggestive way. So I would use a very limited version of the Kalam argument, and I wouldn't want to oversell it as this is clinching proof. Right. Well, I think that's something you and I have in common when we're engaging people and using arguments. Like I, I believe when you make an argument, try to make your evidence as bulletproof as possible. And one way to make your argument really strong is it's just not overextend your case. If you are making a modest claim, that's easier to defend than a very strong claim. Uh, so I agree with the science there because you'll have people putting forward these theorems like the board vilenkin guth theorem and others. But then there are exceptions and there are... In, including Craig, he appeals to that theorem. Right. And then the very, the very guys he's citing say he's misapplying my theorem. Right, so I think that you and I might agree, I would agree with the science that it points. And, and if someone, and now, now everyone looking at the scientific evidence, not all of them will find that convincing of an absolute beginning, but some will, and if it is helpful for them, the scientific-based Kalam can be a good argument. I just happen to think something similar can be done with the philosophical arguments, that they may not convince everyone that the universe had a beginning, but for some people, it may be very suggestive that, no, I think they're, they're, these arguments show there's a beginning. And so I think they may, they may not be conclusive proofs, but they might have that, a similar suggestive power, in my opinion. Okay. And I recognize that different people will find different arguments persuasive. And I don't have a problem in principle saying to people, here's a set of arguments that have been proposed, mm -hmm. and you can evaluate them for yourself. 
Um, but I, what I don't want to do is present arguments that I don't believe work mm -hmm. as if they're proofs. Um, this is something that actually came up when I debated Bill Craig, because mm -hmm. um, I had a debate with him on this subject on Matt Frad's Pints with Aquinas podcast. Right. And, um, and I presented a counter-argument to, uh, to Craig where I said, okay, classically, the way divine omnipotence is understood, and this goes, you know, Aquinas has this definition, is um, God can do anything that is logically possible, meaning God, if, there, if a state of affairs does not involve a logical contradiction, God can make it happen. Right. So God could make fire-breathing dragons if he wanted, but he could not make married bachelors mm -hmm. because there's a contradiction between the idea of being a bachelor and the idea of being married. Similarly, he could not make four-sided triangles because by definition, triangles have three angles and three sides if it's a closed, you know, um, a polygonal shape. Right. So, um, so for me to say the universe must have a path, must have a beginning mm. for philosophical rather than scientific reasons would be convertible to the proposition God cannot make a universe with an infinite past. And if you say God cannot make something, then to me that means it must involve a logical contradiction. So from a Christian perspective, I would need to see a logical contradiction in the idea of an infinite past. And Craig does not propose one. He, he instead will say things like, well, if, uh, if the universe did have an infinite past, then there would be an actual infinity, and that leads to absurd conclusions. Therefore, there was no infinite past. And I don't buy that at all, because God can do things that strike us as absurd. How about God becomes man? You know, God dies on a cross. God gives us his body and blood under the forms of bread and wine. And also, all of quantum mechanics. You know, God does all kinds of things that strike us as absurd from a human perspective. So I need more than just something that seems absurd before I can say God can't do something. I need an actual logical contradiction. And, and Craig doesn't propose one. So he very much did not like my counter-argument. And part of the reason he didn't like it is because it, he was like, why would you even want to argue this way? Because this argument could help convince people of, to believe in God. And so he had a practical, you know, he was concerned about my counter-argument would damage the utility of this in convincing people. And I said, you know, from a Catholic, from a Christian position, I think I'm ethically obligated to examine my own arguments and not just say, oh, that'll work and run with it. I need to cross-examine my own arguments and say, would they work from my perspective? Right. And if they don't work from my perspective, then I need to tell people that. And so that actually got me a lot of respect on the atheist internet. Um, and there are atheists who take me more seriously. They also take you seriously. Uh, Trent and I are two of the apologists that are taken most seriously by atheists on the internet because they recognize we're not going to use an any-stick-will-do approach to apologetics. We actually cross-examine our own, our own arguments. Um, so I think there's a limited utility to saying, here are a bunch of arguments, you can pass your own judgment. But I f if I know I think an argument doesn't work, I feel an obligation, from my position, I feel an obligation to say, personally, I'm not a fan of this one. I don't think it works. Well, I agree with you that if there is an argument that I think is just patently bad, uh, I will not use it, and I will just say that. Like saying, for example, an argument from common consent. Uh, if nearly everybody agrees on something, it's true. Nearly everybody agrees there's a God. Therefore, God exists. The way the now that argument could be saved if you modify the premises a bit. But so, if I see an argument, and I think it's just bad. I might think, okay, maybe I can fix it up a little bit to nuance it to avoid these problems. Uh, I did watch your dialogue with Craig. 
I do think, though, that one concern I have is I agree with you that God can do anything that is not logically contradictory, but there is, uh, there is a bit of a spectrum when we talk about logical contradiction. So you can have... Oh, this is getting interesting. Yes, it will. A so we spectrum involving, involving precise definitions. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you have s- strict logical contradictions, broad logical contradictions, and then the possible but the absurd over here that you're discussing. So we have this kind of no man's land here in the middle. So strict logical contradictions would be things that we can discover without even knowing the deeper meanings of the terms. So if I said... Things that are explicit contradictions. They are explicit. The fact that A and not A cannot be true at the same time. So even if you don't know what marriage is, if you know a bachelor is just a person who is not married then you can know that you couldn't be a married bachelor. If I, say, if I said, you I know... I would say that's an implicit contradiction since you don't have Bob is married and not married. You right. Know. But I think that you, there would just be the, the basic term there. You know, to say a married bachelor, what does that mean? It is a man who is married and not married. But there are other things that... And when we say logical contradiction, we would just say, or an impossibility... Like, there are things that are technologically impossible. You know, once we couldn't go to the moon, now we did go to the moon. Well, we did. Some people disagree. That's a different subject. Um, Stop we'll be covering that other mysterious world. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, there's things that are physically impossible, like, you know, uh, traveling the, the speed of light, given the laws of physics. Assuming you have mass, which every Catholic should. Right. Or, you know, jumping 30 feet in the air. But that would be different even being on other planets, things like yeah. that. But there are things that are impossible given the nature of reality itself that are not explicit uh, in the definitions of terms. That these are things that just could not happen in any possible world. Uh, so a few examples might be a, uh, an object that has color but does not have shape. I would say that that is not a strict logical contradiction, but when you start thinking about having color and having shape, you can't really have color unless you also have corresponding shape. I want to say you can't have an object unless it has a shape. Sure. Well, I guess the question is, but you could have something that has the property of, well, you can can have colors that exist, I guess, as universals, perhaps. But yeah, okay, so an object needs to have a definite shape. That would, be, that would be another example. It might be a changing shape or a complex shape, but if it's an object, it's going to have a shape. Yeah, it has to have definite shape, for example. Uh, or there are things we can imagine God doing that he actually can't do, like make a mistake, uh, make a rock that he can't manipulate. So it's not, so there are things like, oh, saying God, that would be absurd. It's, it's, it strikes us as odd, but it's possible. Then there are other things, though, that are odd and also impossible. So the problem for most philosophers is that this area here is kind of a no-man's land. Where do you find the boundary between the absurd possible and the absurd impossible beyond the stuff that's just easy from the definitions? So I think when the Kalam argument comes up, for a lot of people, we have an infinite past, we'll have thought experiments, it will lead to absurd things. People are going to disagree about where on the line does it, can it be an absurd possible or it's absurd impossible. There's not really a straightforward way to adjudicate that. So I agree that there are border cases where it's not obvious at first glance if something involves a logical contradiction. And the classic example of this is a rock too heavy for God to lift. Mm -hmm. Because it is not obvious, it's not as clear as four-sided triangle. Right. That that involves a logical contradiction. And so people seriously ask, well, could God make a rock too heavy to lift? For him to lift? And the answer is no, because such a rock would um, weigh so much. Now, actually, okay, brief detour. When I was in grad school in philosophy, we were talking about this issue. Can God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? And I said, no, because any rock that massive would collapse under its own weight and become a black hole and cease to be a rock. And my professor said, you have just answered the question while dodging the issue, welcome to academia. <laughs> and, uh, but the actual answer is no for a different reason, because any rock that God, since God is omnipotent, he has infinite lifting power. A rock too heavy to be moved by infinite lifting power would have more than infinite weight. 
And there is no such thing as more than infinite. There are different kinds of infinity, right. but there's nothing more than infinite. And so such a rock involves a logical contradiction, and therefore it's not the kind of thing that God can make. It's a disguised four-sided triangle. So I agree, there are cases where you really have to think carefully to figure out, is another, this contradictory or yeah, not? Another one would be, uh, abs- could a world be absolutely empty? It's going to depend on what you mean by absolutely empty. Universal negation. They're a state of absolute nothingness. So one might think that that is possible, but given that God is a necessary being, mm-hmm. there could never be such a state. Right. If you mean could the empty set exist as all, as all of reality, the answer is no. The right. empty set couldn't. But could I imagine a universe that's five light years of empty space? Yes, but the space is a thing. Right. Um, so there are fringe cases where you have to think carefully, and and di- people might fall on different sides of the issue. They might some people might think, well, that does involve a contradiction. Other people might think, no, it doesn't. So I acknowledge all that. Yeah, we need a practical way to sort through that. And I would propose as a practical test of what are we safe to assume as Christians, I would say we need to set the default in favor of God's omnipotence. So in other words, if you want to say God can't do something, the burden of proof is on you to show that. And so, uh, so my challenge to supporters of philosophical versions of the Kalam argument right. would be to say, okay, so the burden of proof is on you. Show me why this involves a logical contradiction. And if you can't show me that, then I'm going to default in God's favor and say, as far as I can tell, he can do it. So that's my challenge to you, Trent. Show me where the idea of an infinite past involves a logical contradiction. Well, why don't we go through some of the standard arguments then, and you can discuss the mm-hmm. problems that you have. I have some sure. problems as well. Uh-huh. Um, let's go through a few of them. So Craig's first argument would be that an actual infinite number of things can't, an actual infinite cannot exist. All right. So there's different kinds of infinites. You have the potential infinite, where you can keep dividing and dividing and dividing forever, or you can have a collection that is an actually infinite number of things, like everything in the collection corresponds to a natural number, one, two, three, four, etc. So the argument is that an actual infinite cannot exist, a beginningless past is an actual infinite, therefore the past uh, cannot be beginningless. Uh, now I think actually that argument has some serious problems, but there are ways to rehabilitate it. It will go back to the question of can an actual infinite exist, which is interesting here because uh, I think the position that you hold on this would actually does diverge a bit from Aquinas because in Summa Theologia 147, part one, 147, if you're looking it up, uh, he says that, in, although, once again, you know, he's actually not entirely clear. He says something on the eternity of the world that contradicts himself on this one little fleeting line. But otherwise, in his arguments, he says that the only thing that can be infinite is God. You can't have an actual infinite multitude. Now, he thinks you could have an actual infinite series of some kinds, but he does not think you could have an actual infinite multitude existing simultaneously. Simultaneously, right. Because he says the infinite, just as a day only exists one minute at a time, the the infinite, these numbers exist one number at a time, not all at once. Uh, so when it comes to Craig's argument with the actual infinite, he would try to give an example, and philosophers come up with this, and mathematicians. The most famous would come from David Hilbert, the late 19th century, early 20th century mathematician, who comes up with the idea of, a, of an actually infinite hotel, with an, uh, and every single room is occupied with a guest. And so there are, uh, Hilbert proposed there are these uh, absurdities that result from that. Uh, one of, you know, so... Two that would come to be is that every single room in the hotel. So think about this. You know, we're, we're in a hotel right now. If every single room in a hotel is occupied, uh, do you have any vacancies? At Hilbert's hotel, the answer is uh, every room is occupied, uh, vacancies open. Come on in, because you could uh, move a guest. You know, you could move the guest. You could check in a new person if every room's occupied. Move the guy in one to two, the guy in two to three, three to four. You could do this, and you could add one person. You could actually shift everyone, doubling their rooms, and you could add 
an infinite number of people to the hotel. Uh, so, you, so the question that comes up is, could you have, while you can do mathematics with infinity, you can add uh, infinite sums together. The question that Craig proposes is, uh, could you actually do this, could this exist in the real world? Could it be established in a concrete way? Uh, now I do think, so there's the question one of, is this situation absurd? There's also another question that I think is more problematic is does it even apply to the argument at all? So we can go either way you want on that. So I tell it, what's your opinion? Are you How okay would you respond to this argument? Um, I think we should, wait, uh, between the two choices that you just gave? Yeah, would you, would you, what, do you, what are you thinking so far? I think Jimmy should respond to, to what you just said, but I think we, we, <laughs> we need to uh, establish why we're doing this again, just because I've seen a lot of people come in since we began, and that is that the Kalam argument works, you both said, if I understood mm -hmm. this correctly, if we can say that the universe has a beginning. Right. So the, 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 whether or not the Kalam argument is a stable, useful argument comes down to, is it possible that the universe does not have a beginning? Not whether it does in fact, but is it possible that it could? Is that correct? Well, the question is, is it impossible for the universe to not have a beginning? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, how is a double negative not just a positive? <laughs> but, but I'm not a very good philosopher, I don't know. So, uh, just I'd, all I just wanted to establish that, but yeah. that's what—that's why we're arguing about. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, the way you phrase it. So, could it be that God made uh, a universe that's eternal into the past? Right. Uh, and Jimmy says yes. You say maybe, but it seems absurd. Well, I, I actually have a bit of a modified view here. So, I, to okay. put forward. So, what was the question you asked me? I don't. I was just trying to confuse you. Oh, well, that worked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to to put out there. I prefer an argument uh, a little bit different from Craig's. Uh, it would go something like this. Uh, if the past were infinite, contradictions would be possible. Contradictions are not possible, therefore the past is not infinite. So it's a little bit different than Craig's. I'm not saying that it is the infinite past itself that is impossible. It is the fact that if the past were infinite, things could occur that are contradictions. Okay, so I would, my first response to that would be, it's an interesting line of argument, but unless you can show that it leads to contradictions, not just the possibility of contradictions, then we still have a state of affairs that's logically possible that God could create it. Right. Because God could create an infinite past where contradictions could arise, but don't. Right, and I actually agree with that, is that if you modify the argument in this way, you might end up coming up with this sort of caveat, that if the past were infinite, the only way it could be infinite is if there is a perfectly rational, omnipotent being that keeps it in existence to prevent these paradoxes from occurring. Mm -hmm. so and either I would, way, you I would end have up with no God, I, what? So either way, you end up with God, is what yeah, you're saying. Right. Okay. That's just what I was in the process of I saying. I apologize, Jimmy. <laughs> Not that confused anymore, am I? So, so I would not have a problem if you want to, you, I mean, there are lots of arguments, regardless of whether the past is infinite or not, that, argue, that show God's existence. And so if you want to create a kind of forked Kalam argument where yeah. if it has a past, if, if it doesn't have an infinite past, that implies God, and if it does have an infinite past, that also implies yes. God. I have no problem with that. Well, here's, let me give you an analogy to how people would understand that. And this will be, be fun. We can really nerd out with this one. Talk about time travel, all right? So could someone time travel into the past and then change it in a way that still affects their own timeline, creating certain kinds of paradoxes? It's going to depend on your theory of time travel. The standard theory, the, the two options that are standard are if you travel into the past, you're not capable of affecting anything. So you can't kill your own grandfather. Something will stop you right. via a temporal uh, chronology projection conjecture, that protection conjecture that uh, Stephen Hawking proposed. Or you, when, you, when you do make a change, you're creating a branching timeline. Right. So your past is still preserved in a timeline you're no longer part of, and you create a new timeline that 
where you do kill your grandfather, and you never come to be born in this new timeline, but you still ex- the older you still exist because you were born in the original timeline. Right. So what I would say, and this also gets back to the question of theory of time, which maybe we, sh- we will talk, we'll, we'll do time travel. Let's talk about what time is, uh, because this was part about of your- 30. Right. We, we still got a half hour. We're good. Because uh, this was a big di- dispute between you and William Lane Craig mm-hmm. yep. about the Kalam argument. Because, and this is something I agree with you on that uh, as Catholics, we believe that God is timeless. You know, God, so Craig has an interesting view God is timeless sans creation. But when God creates, he enters into time. But that would mean God changes and God is immutable. That's a big no no if you're pure actuality to have the potential to yeah. become temporal. Uh, it would, everything would fall apart there. So I would agree that God is timeless. There is a little debate we could have then, is time, our past, present, and future all equally real, and God cre- you know, creates it? We perceive it sequentially, but they're all equally real, or someone like Craig, only the present is real. You know, yeah. That will get us into deeper waters. Let's just assume past, present, and future are equally real, because you seem to think that if God is timeless mm-hmm. and he sustains all these temporal moments equally, then they're all equally, they're all equally real. That doesn't affect his timelessness or anything like that. Correct. If God is outside of time, which the church teaches that he is, yeah. then all of past, present, and future must be equally real to him. Right. And Because if that wasn't the case, then God's knowledge of what is real would change as time changes, and God would no longer be outside of time. Yeah. So if presentism were true, and God knows that it's now 2023 in time, then next year, in eternity, God will know now it is 2024, and God's knowledge has just changed. And so then God is inside of time too. So the only way for him to be genuinely outside of time is for the past, the present, and the future to all be equally real right there in front of him. So the question is then, could one travel through time? And and I'm just going to assume there's no branches, that there's one timeline that remains. In which case, there's no possibility of changes. There's no possibility of changes. Uh, I would say that if God is omnipotent and he creates the universe, he can make it so that I have a temporal existence going along this line. He then allows me to be at this point in the past, then transports me back and my temporal existence continues, all in doing so preventing paradoxes from occurring. Okay. But if I could just invent a time machine and I could just go back and I would, and I would do this, and that's part of this entire world block universe, if you will, there are these contradictions that arise. And so some philosophers say, well, no, you can't travel in the past because it's inexplicable. Why is it you reference the chronological protection conjecture from Stephen Hawking? I think that's similar to the Novikov self-consistency principle. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the idea that something, time, the universe, something won't let you kill your own grandfather, kill yourself, give yourself the plans to the time machine to build it, uh, you know, well, that's just things. a bootstrap paradox. That's different. Well, it's similar to the it is a paradox. Yeah, so it's in the family of time travel paradoxes. Now, I think what makes sense to me is that if time travel ever did happen, God is God is the one, this inexplicable force. Otherwise, I find it odd that like for some reason you'll slip on the banana peel when you try to kill your grandfather. All these weird things will happen. It's very inexplicable to me. But if God is like, hey, I'm not letting paradoxes happen here, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. So when we deal with the arguments with Kalam. If you have thought experiments about an infinite past that create these sort of contradictions with the infinite, uh, you could only have an infinite past if God exists so that certain causal uh, functions in an infinite past will just never obtain. God will not allow it to have these paradoxical features. But if he's not there, there's nothing really to stop these paradoxes from occurring if the past is infinite and different beings and creatures can have their causal powers. Does that make sense? It does. My first thought is that there are a couple uh, I guess I have a couple of thoughts. The first one is we're diverging from strict philosophy at this point, and we're incorporating scientific elements into a philosophical defense. So really what you're mounting is not a philosophical argument, 
for the finitude of the past. You're arguing a proposal that involves scientific elements like time travel actually being possible and there only being one timeline instead of branching timelines. And those are matters that would have to be validated or not scientifically. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it seems to me that we're, we're, in, we're, we're drifting towards a, sci- a, mm-hmm. a, a scientific version of the argument rather than a strictly philosophical one. And I don't have a problem with that. But again, like everything in science, it's going to be provisional. Right. Well, I, yeah. The second thought is this is a very speculative scientific argument because we don't know that time travel into the past is possible. It, it may be, but we... Well, if God is omnipotent, I would lean on if the God side is that omnipotent, he could do that. He is, yes. Yeah. But if God is omnipotent, he can also create a branching timeline situation where he doesn't need to be... Uh, chronology protection police, right? where he could just let the contradictions emerge and branch off new timelines, in which case, I mean, again, he, he, he still needed as the creator of all these timelines, you know, to, to allow the universe to branch in this way. But if that's the case, why do you need to even involve the beginning? Why don't you just use the contingency argument and say whatever exists needs an explanation. Mm-hmm. Stuff exists that could be different. Therefore, God's the explanation. Right. Why do we need to drag the beginning of the universe it into would, this at all? It would go back to the arguments that Craig and others would raise about contradictions that would follow from an infinite past. So, uh, so to pick one, for example, to go through them, well, I, it's interesting. Uh, so the the actual infinite argument, I agree, that one has a hard time to be applied because past events aren't like presently existing hotel rooms. All the present hotel rooms exist at the same time. Correct. So, And they're all welded to each other in a certain order, room one, two, three, four, five, right. and so forth. Right. But if the past were infinite, you could have a case where uh, objects come into existence once every Google years that are indestructible, and so by the present, you would have an actual infinite collection of, of a multitude. And so then the question would become, if there are problems with that, uh, such as you know, different paradoxes that arise from this sort of collection, uh, you know, is the infinite past to, to blame for that? Uh, does that show that you can't have an infinite past? Because, like I said with my modified argument, if the past were infinite, contradictions would be possible, contradictions are not possible, so yeah. the past would not be infinite. So... And I should, we should explain by paradox in this case, what I'm looking for is not an absurdity, mm-hmm. but an antinomy, which mm-hmm. is where two things literally contradict each other on the logical level. And I haven't seen anybody propose how just the idea of an infinite series of past historical moments leads to antinomies. Yeah. Um, the, it, well, invariably, what happens in, when people try to propose arguments like this is they end up stitching something on to the idea of an infinite past series of moments. For example, suppose that there's an infinite... This is a parody argument, but it makes the point. Someone will construct an argument that is like, suppose there's an infinite number of past moments. Well, if that's the case, there could be a four-sided triangle existing in each of those past moments. And in that case, the idea of an infinite past involves a logical contradiction because four-sided triangles can't exist. Well, duh, the problem is that four-sided triangles can't exist. It has nothing Not, to do with it. has nothing to do with there being an infinite past. You've just stitched a logical contradiction onto an infinite past. The real problem is the four-sided triangle, not the infinite past. But you could have situations where you have uh, two different kinds of causation, one involving the infinite past and one involving something that's not absurd, like a four-sided triangle. Mm-hmm. And the question is, can both of them be true. So one, this would be called a, a Bernadette uh, causation sequence. And this is popularized in things like the so-called Grim Reaper paradox. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's walk people through that. There's different, well, we could do Grim Reaper. I sort of like a, another one from Rob Coons called the paper passer experiment. So here, and, let and me, let me, before that, let me give you well, I mean, we can do it either way, but that's going to... I have a, a counter-argument I'd like to present that I think reframes this discussion in a constructive way. And it'll, it'll only take me a minute to do, because I okay. don't want us to run out of time. All right. Is timekeeping one of your duties? Yeah, you got about uh, less than 20 minutes. About okay. Oh, we're still okay. Okay. So, um, 
So one of the things that I find is very helpful to do in evaluating any the universe must have beginning argument is to flip the arrow of time. Sure. Because we agree as part of the Christian faith, we are always going to exist. We are never going to pass out of existence. There will never be a moment, however far in the future, where our souls wink out of existence. We are eternal beings in the forward direction. And that means we have an infinite future. So if, as we assumed, from God's perspective outside of time, the past, the present, and the future are equally real, mm-hmm. then God not only can create an actual infinity, right. he has created an actual infinity right. in the future direction. And if he can create an actual infinity in the future direction, he can similar that then that obviously the idea of an actual infinity of, of sequential moments does not involve a logical contradiction. And if it doesn't involve a logical contradiction in the future, he could do the same thing in the past. And so it would be within the power of God's omnipotence to create an actual infinitude of past moments the same way he's created an actual infinitude of future moments. Mm -hmm. And so with that as a framing of what we need to accomplish, we need to not only say that there's something about that there's a logical contradiction involved here, but it needs to uniquely involve the nature of the past. You have to exclude the future. Because we've already seen the future is infinite. I agree with you. So we need a symmetry breaker. Yeah. And I think that one symmetry breaker is that causation flows from the past to the future, generally. Generally, I agree, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Retrocausation is actually a hot topic in physics and parapsychology right now. It is, but the standard thing, for, for most of the vanilla flavor, we're going to go from the past to the future. So when it comes to, for example, uh, Craig's arguments, I agree, if the past isn't, can't exist because it's an actual infinite, a beginningless past, an endless future can't exist for the same reason. But we know the future is endless, so I agree that that is a bad argument. But in my view, for example, like if you start at the present and you uh, start building Hilbert's Hotel, for example, we start today, we build room one, room one, room two, room three, room four. We'll never finish. Hilbert's Hotel will never exist into the future. So if there are contradictions with the hotel, that will not be the case. So if the hotel is built from the present into an endless future, Hilbert's Hotel never exists. But if the hotel had been constructed since had been constructed throughout a beginningless past, and you talk about this, you gotta get your tenses right. If it had been constructed throughout a beginningless past up to the present, every single past day there has been a Hilbert's Hotel. Yes. So I do think that accumulation, causation in that way, uh, causation going from past to future, creates that kind of symmetry breaker that shows we've got more problems with an infinite past than we do with an infinite future. And that's where I would bring up the different causal sequences that could be in contradiction with each other. Okay, so which would you like to propose to show me a logical contradiction involving the idea of an infinite series of past moments? Well, we could do the paper passer. So, all right. So when you, let's say say God, God can create an infinite number of immortal people, each of whom has a name that corresponds to a natural number. So we have a line. We have Mr. Zero, Mr. One, Mr. Two, Mr. Three, Mr. Four. And it, and it goes on forever. Okay, so the names of these entities, and I'm familiar with the paper passer, I'm just clarifying for the audience. So sure. in this version of the paper passer, the names of the people correspond to the natural numbers beginning with zero. Right. Okay. So in one sense, uh, they could all exist and they just say their name. I'm Mr. Three, I'm Mr. Two, I'm Mr. One. And then today, I'm Mr. Zero. And there doesn't seem to be, you know, there's no contradiction in that unless you have certain kinds of causal sequences with this infinite number of immortal people. And so a philosopher, Rob Coons, has proposed this, the paper passer experiment. Uh, suppose everyone in this infinite line of immortal people, Mr. Zero, one, two, three, four, going on forever, receives a piece of paper from the person on their left, and they have instructions. If it is blank, they, uh, they write their name on it. Mr. Zero, Mr. One, Mr. Two, Mr. Three. If they get the paper and it's blank, they write their name. If the paper already has a name on it, they pass it forward to the person on their right. And so what ends up happening is you have a contradiction here. Whose name is on Mr. Zero's paper? Uh, It's not going to be Mr. Zero because if it were blank, one would have written his name. 
It can't be one because if it were blank, two would have written his name, and so on and so on going, going forward. By the way, this is just one example. There are others that are proposed for the particular causal mechanism here. Called, it's called a Bernadette sequence, named after the mathematician Jose Bernadette. And so the idea here is that you have, you have a sequence where uh, you refrain if every other member of the sequence before you has refrained. That's and, a, that's and, the kind and of sequence. we're counting down towards zero. We're counting towards zero. You receive the paper from infinity going in that direction to the present with Mr. Zero. And so now we have this paradox. It seems like they're capable of passing a blank sheet of paper forever. They can all say their names. But when you give them this rule about refraining from writing your name if the person before you had not, you know, has already written their name, you get a paper that comes to Mr. Zero that must have a number on it, but it can't have any particular number on it. And so that would be, that's a contradiction right there. And so the question, and so what I would say is, all right, what's the problem here? We have the Bernadette sequence, though that doesn't seem to be the problem, that we could do it with a finite number of people, you refrain unless someone else has, has acted, or what if you had a sequence that had no first member? I'm much more skeptical about the existence of those kinds of sequences. So the idea here is that, oh, well, if you believe in something like causal finitism, well, you can have, the problem with the paper passer thought experiment is you try to have this infinite causal history, and that itself is a contradiction that can obtain. Okay, so my thought on this is you've just embedded, and Coons has just, not you personally, Coons has just embedded a four-sided triangle in the past. Because the problem is not anything about the past. The problem is the stupid rule system he set up. It's like if I said, oh, okay, so imagine an infinite past sequence of time, and there are these people living at all prior moments, right. and the rule is, there's two rules. The first rule is when it gets up to your moment in time, you must jump up, jump up off the ground. And when it's second rule... When it gets up to your moment in time, you must not jump up off the ground. Well, I've just demonstrated a logical contradiction. Not with the idea of an infinite past, but with a contradiction in the rules I generated. And so I would say the paper passer game is exactly the same thing. The rules have been constructed in a way that puts the paper passers in a logical contradiction, but it's not the infinitude of the past that generates that, it's the rule system. So I would say Coons has embedded a four-sided triangle in the past. The problem is the four-sided triangle, not the infinitude of the past. And I would disagree because there's nothing in the rules of writing down that require you to do something like jump and not jump at the same time. No, that's because, a, that's because you could do because you couldn't even do that in a finite sequence. I agree. That's for a simplified example for purposes of illustration. Sure. What Coons has done is disguise the four-sided triangle so the contradiction in the rules is not obvious and doesn't hit you in the face. Well, where exactly is the contradiction? The contradiction is in the idea that there must be something on the piece of paper and yet there is no one to have written it on the piece of paper. The problem is not in the idea of time extending into the past, it's in the behaviors that the people on in the game are allowed or not allowed to do based on the rules. So the contradiction is in the rules. One of the rules is if the paper's blank, you write your number. Right. And another rule is you receive the paper from the person on your left. But if the paper was blank when the person on your left got it, he would have written his name. So if you got it, then... Um, and it was blank, then he must not have written his name on it, so he broke the rules. So there is a, it's not a single rule in contradiction to, um, in contra it's not as simple as A and not A, where you have two directly contradicting. It's like A implies B, B implies C, C implies not A. Mm -hmm. And so it's a chained contradiction rather than two rules that are in direct contradiction with each other. Yeah, and what I would say is I still don't, that I agree that if you say, oh, well, this shows that there is a contradiction in the, in the rules, I think that might actually be Kuhn's very point here. And this would get back to, this is a nice way to put a bow on 
the argument that I'm making about even if the past were infinite, God would still need to exist. You wouldn't let you wouldn't let people make stupid rule systems like this. Actually, precisely because you could have people playing another rule, pass the paper along and don't do anything to it, for example, and that's something that could happen. But it seems like we have all of the actors involved in this infinite sequence, and the contradiction arises when the entire group of actors, this infinite set, chooses to do something that it seems like any segment of them can do, but if they all choose to do it, it creates this this paradox or this contradiction, and God will not allow them all as a whole to, to do that, just like he won't allow you to kill your grandfather, you go back in the past, or things like that. So I don't think the rule only becomes contradictory when an infinite number of people are following it, not the rule itself. Yeah, well, it's sort of putting fire in the equations. You can you can sketch a rule system that contains a logical contradiction, and the contradiction may not become actual until you actually try to play the game and realize that the rules contradict each other. Right. Sai, what do you think? Um, well, I, I I don't know what to think about all this, but the it it it's that is a very precise and difficult problem is the where does the contradiction arise here because if the contradiction arises from the fact that you can create a set of rules that are perfectly simple and could be played anywhere but can't be played in an infinite universe Mm -hmm. does that contradiction then say there's no a universe with infinite past or does it just say well your rules don't work in Do you see what I'm saying? It right. kind of begs the question. Well, and my argument is just that if you have an infinite number of causes, we can call them people with causal powers or things like that, I think many of these paradoxes arise by just arranging the causal powers in a particular way that's prohibited. And that's why I use the time travel example, that time travel only becomes a problem you have to explain, whether it's branching or self-consistency, when someone acts in a certain way. Uh, so I think that when you examine this, and, there, and there's all different kinds. There's the, the Grim Reaper experiment. There's ones where you kind of cram it all together from 12 to 1 o'clock. How much time do we have left? Well, you got seven minutes. So let's, you clo- can actu- let's close You can it. actually complete an infinitely long argument if you progressively approach the next seven minutes by halves. Right. So if we just, if we just speed up how we're talking <laughs> twice every... By, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm from the South. That's not going to work. I don't know if you guys want to make kind of summing up statements. Maybe, yeah, I maybe was impressed that both of you agreed that because you have an infinite number of minute moments going into the future, that, or that you both agreed that that is the case, when are we certain that that is the case? When Absolutely. you're talking, well, wait, when you're talking about a universe and not about souls. We did, the question was about can the universe have an infinite past, not about can souls. In, in this case, the well, if souls do, then the universe does when you conceptualize the universe as the set of everything that exists, as opposed to the physically observable universe that we see around us. We could call, it, rea- which, we could call which, it reality instead of the universe. Okay, yeah. but so that which of those does the Kalam argument refer to? This universe? Uh, that we're it, it, it's ambiguous. In? It can refer to either, depending on how you constru- construct it. Yeah. So that's the point of agreement that Jimmy and I have: is that if your argument, if it also shows that an a endless future is impossible, then I think you're right. That Craig himself said, "Well, that's just an ad hominem argument against the Kalam. It doesn't show anything." Well, it does if you're a Christian. You're commit. That's our hope. Yeah. Our hope yeah. is in. I don't like this argument. If I have to give up an endless future. I would rather not have that. But I do think that there is an asymmetry between the past and the future uh, in that respect. And I also agree with you that the um, if you use the argument in a way to make God temporal, uh, then you, sh- you shouldn't do that. But I do think there are ways that it can be saved based on what an infinite past might entail. Another one we didn't have time to get into is, let's say, the successive addition argument. I'm not going to go too much into that. It's the idea, it's like, well... How can the past be formed, you know, one day at a time? If it's infinite, you can't count to infinity. I agree that that argument gets severely undercut if the past, present, and future are equally real and they weren't formed successively. It's just God made it in a timeless moment. And Craig himself admits that. It undercuts it severely or just wrecks it. I think the only way you could save that would just be the paradox of an immortal individual experiencing a beginningless past as a succession 
but and it would be, you could do the forming thing uh, in that way. But once again, that would only be the case of an infinite past is contradictory if God happens to make an infinite immortal person who experiences it in this way. Well, even then, I don't think that that would. I, if God can make a non-conscious system like the universe or reality that has an infinite history and no beginning, God could just by snapping his fingers in the eternal now, God could similarly snap his fingers in the eternal now and create an entity that is conscious, that has an eternal history and no beginning. So, you know... Bob, the immortal man, would have would have no beginning, but would be approaching today in one-day increments, and there would just be no beginning. So I wouldn't see that as involving a contradiction. I think the difference with Bob, the conscious immortal man, is that he's able to do things like make a notation for every day that passes. And so even though this is hard, if past, present, and future are real... Uh, you know, we, we experience what seems to be the passage of time, mm -hmm. but it objectively is not, but we're experiencing, because they're all equally real, our, the thing where we're having a real experience of something that seems like the passage of time. And so the question is, could that be, does it make sense for that if it's one moment followed by another moment, and the series is only constituted by one moment and another moment, finite and finite, finite plus finite is always... Um, Finite. It's always finite, yeah. Yeah, but as if there's no beginning, then the overall series is infinite. Having said that, yeah, well, we're, we're getting to... We've got two minutes. Two let's minutes, wrap so, it up. so let me agreeify with you for a moment. All right. Um, I agree that the cosmological, the Kalam cosmological argument works in principle. It's both, uh, it's both valid and sound. The question for apologetic purposes is can we demonstrate that the second premise, that the universe has a beginning, that that's true using reason alone? Or can we only prove it by appealing to sources of faith? If we can prove it by appealing to reason alone, then the argument gains utility for dealing with non-believers in God uh, or doubting believers in God. Um, there would be two ways of approaching, proving it from a perspective of reason alone. One would be the scientific approach. One would be the philosophical approach. I think the scientific approach is potentially usable, but is provisional, so we can't oversell it as conclusive proof. I think your idea of um, rescuing the philosophical arguments by proposing a forked Kalam right. is an interesting proposal but I would have a couple of notes. The first note would be, um, are you actually constructing a philosophical argument here, or are you transitioning to a scientific argument that is only going to be provisional? And second, in this forked version, are you actually gaining any utility? Because it may be simpler to just cut out the issue of, of the past and abandon the Kalam strategy altogether and go with something like the contingency argument and say no matter what, how long it's existed, stuff exists that could be another way and we need an explanation for that and the best explanation is God. So I think it's an intriguing proposal. I'd be happy to think about it and discuss it with you more, yeah. you know, like in private. Um, but one of my questions is going to be... Um, is this actually getting us anything useful for the effort we're putting into it? Right. Um, and with that, folks, welcome to Catholic Geek Out Land. Yeah, and I would... We hope you've enjoyed your stay. <laughs> and I would just say that I agree with you that uh, when we make arguments that are more modest in their conclusions, they become easier to defend. And I think that was a weakness in older versions of the Kalam argument, what I'm trying to do is to come up with something that makes a more modest conclusion that you're right, has that kind of a forked approach that I think it does have utility beyond just the question of contingency and necessity, but the question of that if you have a very strong intuition, as I do and I think many do, that the past has a lot of different features than the future and, include, and when you add infinity to it, that it could lead to paradoxes and contradictions, that either it must be finite, or if it were infinite, uh, there has to be an omnipotent, perfectly rational cause that prevents the paradoxes from forming. Uh, I, I think this is fertile ground to explore. And actually, in my talk tomorrow, The New Case for God, I will be referencing some of the philosophers who are exploring uh, these different territories. So 
stay tuned. That'll do it. Uh, Trent Horn, Jimmy Aiken, thanks very much. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for watching. I'm really excited to dive more into this argument. I'm working on a new book called The New Case for God. Uh, it includes a lot of work that other Christian philosophers have done in the past 10 or 20 years, including on this argument. So really excited to get into this more, to dialogue with Jimmy more about it. Uh, I do want to address one point, though, at the very end of our dialogue. Jimmy raised a really good point. Uh, if my argument still allows that there could be a past, that there could be a universe that is beginningless or, you know, is past infinite as long as God exists to prevent paradoxes, then what benefit does that have in comparison to a contingency argument that says, well, if there was a past infinite universe that did not have to exist, why does it exist? God explains it. Uh, that in modifying the argument to avoid the objections that, let's say, Jimmy is levied or Wes Morrison or other critics of the Kalam argument, have I modified it so much that it's kind of a useless argument? Uh, I don't think so, because what can still be shown is that in a past infinite universe, uh, there are paradoxes that are possible. There are other difficulties in a past infinite universe that require a divine explanation that you don't find in a merely uh, contingent universe, for example, or a universe that's a mixture of potency and act. So I think that this argument can show that God exists, even if the universe are past infinite, which of course we know from faith it's not. But my point would just be, if I had a longer chance to respond to Jimmy, is that there are more difficulties in a past infinite universe with these different paradoxes that Rob Coons, Alex Proust have shown, Andrew Loke. And so these unique difficulties would simply provide more evidence for the conclusion that God exists beyond other arguments like the argument for motion or the contingency argument. So as I said, I'm looking forward to exploring that more, to writing about it in my book, The New Case for God. Hopefully that'll come out in about two years. I'm hoping, working on it right now. I have another book on Protestantism that'll come out before that. But thank you guys so much for watching, and I hope that you have a very blessed day. If you like today's episode, become a premium subscriber at our Patreon page and get access to member-only content. For more information, visit trenthornpodcast.com.